0: Hi listeners, Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read, to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co book club where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September, we'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at racheltompson.co slash book club. What do editors want? It's a question that many creative writers have asked themselves or more likely muttered dejectedly after a frustrating rejection. I'm Rachel Thompson, author and literary magazine editor and your podcast host. The Lit Mag Love podcast grew out of my course by the same name, and I continue to seek out answers to this question of what editors want by going right to the source. I bring you interviews and insights about how to improve and publish your writing. writers. In this episode of the Lit Mag Love podcast, I speak with Lawrence Minview-Davies and Gerald Ma of the Asian American Literary Review. Now, the Asian American Literary Review is a space for writers who consider the designation Asian American a fruitful starting point for artistic vision and community. In showcasing the work of established and emerging writers, the journal aims to incubate dialogues and as they put it just as importantly, open those dialogues to regional, national, and international audiences of all constituencies. They select work that is, as Marion Moore once put it, an expression of our needs and feeling, modified by the writer's moral and technical insights. Published biannually, AALR features fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, translations, comic art, interviews, and book reviews. Lawrence Minbui-Davies is curator of Asian Pacific American Studies at the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center. He is also founding director of the Washington, D.C. based arts nonprofit, the Asian American Literary Review. And Gerald Ma is an editor in chief of the Asian American Literary Review. His essays, poetry and translations appear in places such as poetry, criticism, a sense of regard, essays on poetry and race, and Push Open the Window, Contemporary Poetry from China. He lives in Long Beach. So welcome to the Lit Mag Love podcast, Lawrence Minbui Davis and Gerald Ma of the Asian American Literary Review.
1: Thank you for having us. Very glad to be here.
0: Yeah, it's my pleasure. I want to start, Lawrence, by quoting something that you wrote in Poetry Magazine. You said, Asian American, in scare quotes, has always been an inelegant conglomeration of peoples from all across the world, from nations and cultures too disparate to gather coherently and equitably together. But since it's coining in the late 60s, Asian American has also been a necessary means of organizing in the face of social injustice. So with social injustice, prevalent and in our faces every day. What role do you see writing and poetry in particular playing in resistance to injustices?
1: Well, it it felt necessary for that particular issue to give that sort of undefinition of Asian American or as a starting place to destabilize it as a descriptor that we're used to of, of gathering together these sets of communities and to to recognize that it, it doesn't work very well. Internally, it hasn't worked as an imposed term, that there's always tensions and fractures, but that it has been an opportunity for a kind of strategic essentialism to work together in the face of particular social injustices. And we're actually at about the 50 year anniversary of the third world liberation strikes and the rise of ethnic studies. Um, at San Francisco State and UC Berkeley, which was right at the time when Asian American was coined, the Asian American movement was coined as a, a term. So I guess when you when you ask about the role of writing in relationship to social injustice, I'm wanting to think about it as, a, as injustice being perennial and writing's relationship to injustice being not a new thing now, but dynamic over time. And that writing and art making were always part are always, maybe not necessarily always part, but always tied to Asian American organizing and activism. I guess my sense is that, and and, and a a common notion, right, is that literature and poetry have always had, always have some kind of insurrectionary potential. Um, But I think it's also important to recognize that they've, also always been mobilized for norming and civilizing purposes too. Um, I'm thinking now about in the age of 45, the studies saying that reading is up and that poetry reading in particular is up, especially amongst readers of color and just kind of anecdotally looking across publications, literary publications. It seems like there's more Asian American poets and writers publishing than ever more indigenous poets and Pacific Islanders getting visibility than ever. Um, definitely more queer and trans voices being highlighted than ever. So this kind of idea, a time honored idea of the role of literature carving out space for a, a kind of more complex range of humanity, I think is, is, is true now. It continues to be true. There's, it's a time honored answer for a reason. It helps us, imagine a fuller and, and safer, a kind of more just world. And I think in this now, as, or as under other super repressive regimes, it's an opportunity to make visible the kinds of accountability and woundedness and damage and perpetrators that, that aren't allowed in other spaces when there's control over media and control over or flawed or always flawed criminal justice systems maybe there's just a kind of certain kind of intensification now.
0: For sure. And maybe more awareness of it now, or just sort of like we're paying attention to it now. How has the Asian American identity in writing changed since you started writing and publishing with the literary review?
1: Well, I feel like this is a, this is one that I want to be curious to hear Gerald weigh in on as well. I mean, (laughs) I suspect his opening answer, like mine would be like, it's hard to kind of try to quantify how something's changed. That is never fixed and is sort of always slippery to begin with. And when I like when we like when I ended my last answer, thinking about like the intensification now in the age of forty-five, I would also if we like were jump back to the sixties and the writers of and the artists and organizers of the sixties would probably look at some of the writing that's happening now and it would feel consonant and it would they would be excited by it. But I think they would also look at a lot of it and, and think of. Think of it as like politically tepid, or you know that that there was a kind of radical politics and a a great feeling of being under siege at that time as well. So it's not kind of new now necessarily. And in some ways, at at this 50th anniversary, I and over this your question about what's happened in the last 10 years since we started ALR, maybe a working back up to this kind of anniversary or uh, uh, an increased politicization. I I know across our time publishing ALR, the 10-year anniversary of September 11th and its aftermath and the kind of intensification of anti-Muslim racism and Islamophobia, I think has noticeably shifted fault lines within Asian America and within Asian American writing. Like just on a kind of basic level, the rise of "Apida" as a, as a designation and wanting to recognize Desi communities as maybe distinct or maybe not properly recognized within Asian American, which is an old thing, but maybe intensifying again.
2: I, you know, one of the things also that's happened in the past 10 years is the 2010 census. If, you know, if Asian American is such a, an elegant conglomeration, it's always shifting on the ground level. We could talk about it from the bureaucratic level, right? And you know what's what's happened with the 2010 census. You know the option to do mixed race, um, the continued pl- proliferation of boxes for Asian Americans. That's one way to go about it. And I like that you uh, call them scare quotes around Asian American because um, the way that I think, the astute way that Lawrence talks about Asian American is scary for everybody. <laughs> Strategic essentialism especially in 2018 is, is scary for those who are the expressors of it and for those who are uh, listening to or choosing not to listen to uh, testimonies of strategic essentialism. You know, I think listening to Lawrence, I've, um, I'm just reading Jean-Jacques Rousseau right now. And um, he, he talks about strategic essentialism in his discourse of in, in inequality. And um, for him, and it's just true. Strategic en- essentialism is uh, essentially uh, an act of fiction. It's an act of fiction that has um, real consequences in the world. You know, the big bang theory is an act of fiction, and it you know we pump millions of dollars into science to you know to it 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 legitimizes millions of dollars pumped into science, and you know. I, Acts of fiction that are, you know, origin myths um, result in strong histories of cultural practices and ideas of identity. But um, I think it's important to note that it is an act of the imagination, uh, the strategic essentialism, and it can only be an act of the imagination.
0: There's so much there to dive into. <laughs> I mean, I think it's important to stress that it's strategic essentialism. And I, and I thank you for sharing that with our listeners about how that's just sort of a way to access that discourse or community. And I'm wondering, I guess that does lead me directly into my next question, because Gerald, in an interview from a number of years ago, you were talking about working to widen the boundaries of what is generally considered, again, scare quotes, Asian American. And is there anyone like so far in your publication history that you feel like you haven't published, that you'd like to publish and further widen those boundaries? You know,
2: um, I, I saw this question and I, um, I guess this must have been, you know, closer to the 10 years ago than it is to now, because, you know, inclusivity is a weird word. Um, It's a sacred word for a lot of people. But, you know, there's a paradox in there that, you know, you can't, you know, we want to be inclusive of everybody but the bigots, right? And uh, one of the things that that I'm really kind of keen on now, in the age of where we are, is thinking about writing even poetry even lyric poetry as a mode of communication rather than a um, mode of representation and um i liked that you talked about asian american as a discourse because you know we want to be inclusive you know if we include everybody then then the word has no differentiating purpose then it has no meaning but if it's a word that invites conversation around it and, you know contesting conversations around the boundaries I don't know if I want to go full on with this military metaphor but you know if we have these contests around the boundaries and the boundaries move according to the contest I think that's um, what we want and so I don't know I don't know about naming names um, I want someone whom I don't know whom I've never heard of like uh, this guy John Deary do you remember John Deary Lawrence I do we couldn't find him on the internet because this is a while ago but he sent these like crazy poems in all caps. Um, we're pretty sure he's not ethnically Asian American because they're, you know, and we're pretty sure that he was an undergrad at that time. And they were explosive. They were uneven. They were not necessarily good per se, but they were worth putting in. I mean, I, I enjoyed reading them and I, and I enjoyed, you know, Uh, showcasing his work in our issue was that the second issue or the first issue yeah second or fourth I think I can't remember I think second I think you're right yeah I want people like that (laughs) rather than naming names but um, I don't know what about you Lawrence any any ideas about who you'd like to publish
1: I I like that future orientation of thinking about I mean in general we don't think of ourselves as a showcase or a platform for Asian American literature so much at, because those exist all over the place and more prominently than the space that we're able to occupy. I think we've always thought about ourselves as a, as an incubator or maybe an engine or pushing in certain directions. And so that, you know, that kind of goes against the idea of just like, let's find exciting emerging writers and lift them up. But I do think it is let's locate kindred spirits and help them, push them in the directions they're already inclined maybe and so I, I think like Gerald I'm really excited about receiving work or finding right stumbling across writers that we weren't familiar with whether because they're emerging or just because they haven't been super visible in the channels that we're used to um, and that includes writers that don't necessarily identify as Asian American I mean we primarily publish writers who self-identify as Asian American, but I think we are wanting to get away from a for us, by us kind of conversation and think about Asian American literature as a a lens for seeing the world that should be relevant to everyone, and that it is a conversation that includes very frequently, given the kinds of issues we're concerned with, includes black writers and indigenous writers and Latinx writers and white writers uh, at times. So, so I agree that like finding other writers that see themselves fitting into this space or wanting to be part of this conversation that aren't always Asian American is exciting. I think in terms of like jumping back to your last question shifts in what it means to be Asian American, I think you're seeing in a lot of Asian American art spaces in the last 10 years, more exploration of West and Central Asian folks who don't always identify as Asian American but are potentially interested in the resonances that have cropped up, especially in terms of just how they've been targeted post 9-11. And some of the kind of like South Asian and West and Central Asian shared spaces, whether religious or social or otherwise, that have popped up and new kinds of communities that have formed. And so then you see that reflected in literary spaces as well. And so I think we've, you know, done some publishing of folks that identify as Arab American or Middle Eastern American from Western Central Asian descent. And I think that's something we'd love to do more of in the future. I think another big question for us that we've tried to be very careful about is the space of Pacific Islanders in our work, because there's such a history of (laughs) particularly inelegant conglomeration of Asian American with Pacific Islander, given their kind of some historical overlap, but also like very, very different histories that when those two have been smashed together very frequently, that has meant the erasure of Pacific Islanders and including them in the, in the kind of designation as a token or including them in, in, in say public programming as, as a kind of token. And so we've wanted to be very careful about claiming Asian Americanness and not claiming Pacific Islanders when none of our editorial staff is Pacific Islander and, we haven't been, able, been in a position to have the kind of full-hearted commitment to Pacific Islander literature that that work deserves. And so at the same time, recognizing that there are some shared histories and that it is important and that we are interested in Pacific Islander solidarity and are interested in publishing work by Pacific Islanders, but just not claiming that we are a Pacific Islander space when that wouldn't be accurate or ethical.
0: I remember reading as well, you were talking about translation too, and looking at the diaspora as well, and people who maybe aren't communicating in English, who could still be considered, you know, in this loose sense as well, Asian American, because they're in the Americas, maybe in Latin America. Hmm. Can you talk a bit about that choice to publish those kind of translations?
2: Yeah, Gerald, do you want to wanna take this one? Yeah, Um we had an issue maybe two issues ago. We called it the North-South issue, and it was an issue completely of Asian-American writing, and no one was from the from the United States of America. We have a proclivity from Iopia here. And, uh, yeah, they totally belong. I'm in mean, Spanish, but, um, you know, Creole, all sorts of languages. And I, I, there's much more. Well, you should check it out. We'll send one to, um, was it Lucy? What's the the Canadian journal? I, I'm very excited to learn about this this, about this Canadian.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll
2: send them a copy. Uh, copy, because yeah, there's uh, that border is um, as much as uh, literature loves to talk about open borders. Um, you know, we could we could uh, open up our purview um, much more, and these are different histories, different traditions that intermingle at times and that are um, powerful.
0: At Room, you're just bringing to mind as well an interview I just did with one of the editors at Room, who's publishing a a poetry series online called Turtle Island Responds. She's an indigenous writer and so talking about, you know, the the false construct of these borders as well and how she thinks of it as all being one place. Can I turn though to the the kind of brass tacks, I guess, about publishing with with the Literary Review? Because I know a lot of our listeners are writers who are looking to submit and publish their work. So, can you talk a bit about the submissions that you're reading? Are there common technical problems that we could address and help our, our listeners plan for their submissions to the review?
2: Well, I guess um, the first things first is just, you know, we, uh, you know, read the instructions. Um, we have a summer reading period and we don't consider anything outside of that period. So, um, you know, if as good as it can be if it's, you know, submitted outside of that period, it's dismissed out of hand just because we can't make a case-by-case decision. We don't have time for that. Um, And on the poetry end, um, once one is acquainted with the journal, uh, a poet will understand that we uh, publish folios. So a submission of one or two poems is inadequate purely on the quantitative level. So just be aware like, you know, what we do and that's number one. I've got a technical problem I think I can identify it. We, we get an
1: inordinate amount of like white cis male sex tourism in Asia. <laughs> narratives.
0: You get some of those at Room Magazine too.
1: That's technical, right? I, if you could just take that out of the narrative, that like small technical issue, it would suddenly become, you know, much more viable <laughs> for publication.
2: <laughs> But then where would the pathos and the love be, (laughs) (laughs) Lawrence? Yeah, we get our share of Orientalist love here. I think also a a less virulent form of that is also, you know, um, submitting to, it's very clear when one submits to us because of our um, brutally literal title, rather than knowing, you know, what we publish and the conversations that we're incubating, you know, Um, and we get a lot of that you know, especially from overseas, actually. Um, but I, I I, don't think that is our audience here for people listening to your podcast probably aren't people who submit merely on the title, you know.
0: Yeah, you're saying too, you can really tell if someone's read the journal and's familiar, even just with a baseline of what kind of conversations you want to spark. And there's one line I love in your submission policy that invites the rule breakers out there, it's, I'm sure some people take you up on this, and it's that we will consider longer prose pieces and long poems of exceptional quality. And I'm wondering, do people often take you up on this and how often is it successful and that you would publish that longer work?
2: Not as often as I would like. Um, there's this great, I mean, we're publishing one in the upcoming issue by this um a great young Palestinian mathematician turned poet named George Abraham. And, you know, he included it. He says, like, I know you publish long poems and he he saved it for us. And it's a great poem. And so we're going to, it's really long. <laughs> it's great. That's coming up in the next issue.
0: Oh, and you're reminding me, I forgot to pick up this thread where you're saying a submission of one or two poems is inadequate. Can you talk about why that is? Is it because you prefer to publish a suite of poems or do you want to get a more better sense of the poet's voice before you decide?
2: When we started this, we, we, we liked the model of publishing, you know, an, an, a number of poems by each poet rather than just, you know, one poem to a name. And so um, un, unless it's a long poem, we generally publish, you know, say three to six poems by each poet because like you said we like to give a sense of like ongoing work um, a practice and a process rather than um, you know a poem as an object <laughs> as as an, a poem as an art object we, we like to kind of showcase these names or uh, present these names as an ongoing practice and conversation that's happening
1: we also kind of had a running rubric of wanting to think about our space as you know, maybe not something that publishes things other people wouldn't but that what we publish wouldn't be published elsewhere, which I think fits really nicely for a kind of like novella or really long poems that often don't find a home in in literary journals. So that's another way that we've thought about it. And we have that upcoming piece that Gerald mentioned. I think I think we, we've tended to run long poems and long prose probably every other issue or so, reasonably commonly. And then... Uh, I mean, we, we, we tend to be kind of suckers for the long interview as well. I think our record was we had a, we had one interview with uh, Garrett Hongo and Michael Collier that I think the interview itself took several days. I get that's not that uncommon, but it took several day, several days. But none of that several day worth of conversation got left out of the original transcription. And then we loved it so much in its kind of full length and and, and conversationality. And like veering through years of friendship and tensions and all kinds of different conversations that we tried to preserve it in pretty close to its full form. And we had to publish it across three issues because it was like a hundred pages long, Um, but, but it wasn't repetitive. We felt like it merited it. And actually we really loved the idea of making space for something to really breathe in that way that would be sort of hard to land elsewhere.
0: I'm hearing you use the word conversation so much, which I'm loving and just the sheer delight of you publishing something like that and feeling like, Oh yes, we found a place for this we can provide that place. It's just, I think lovely to hear in music to the ears of writers who are thinking about submitting. And I'm, Want to ask you, too, about how you approach the editing itself, maybe not that particular piece, but but what kind of editing and feedback do you offer contributors as you prepare for publication?
2: I think it's a case by case. I generally do poetry, and um, I'm more hands off with poetry. There's a review that's coming in next issue that's it's a very it's a very young writer, and um, there's a, a fair amount of handholding that's going on with her and um and she's she's great so it's case by case at least on my end
1: yeah that sounds right. i think for gerald and i in general our impulse is to to trust writers and follow their lights and in cases where we're editing and working closely with them it's to kind of help them reach for that place that they're that they're getting they're wanting to get to but might want some structure and help Better getting there. There are regularly cases where we all work closely with writers, sometimes for months at a time, to prepare a piece. And then there's a lot of work that goes almost entirely untouched. So it, it it ranges quite a bit, but I think it all fits underneath a loose philosophy.
0: It is nice to hear that when it's needed, you you give that time, you allow that space. So that's wonderful. I also wanted to follow up about the poetry because I just it's sort of an interesting trend I'm noticing is that most journals and in room included, we don't really edit poetry. So the poetry kind of has to come fairly formed before we would mm-hmm. publish it. So I'm waiting for that journal that says, oh yeah, I spent you know a long time on line by line with this person on the poem, but it hasn't happened yet.
2: Yeah. You know, the, the days of Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot are a little gone. And I, I actually long for that. I think the de facto is poetry is lyric testimony. And so I think poets have generally been de-skilled to account for how someone would edit, you know, how to how to accept, you know, editorial remarks from someone else um, in the age of, you know, lyric expressionism. Cause it feels like an assault on your identity and the the raw originality of the poem. But that need not be the case, I think. You know, and I think poetry could be better for, you know, conversation through the editorial process. But I have yet to, you know, the, these are you'll burn bridges, I think.
1: <laughs> <Of course. laughs> Gerald, I love the description of it as, like, as an assault, because I actually am thinking about, was thinking, as you were talking, thinking about it in contrast to prose, and, like, the tyranny of prose editors who have, like, full, <laughs> take full license to savage, to assault people, myself included, sort of. But I was thinking about it in the inverse, in that, like, as you are sort of longing for a return, I, I've tried to grow more wary over time. And sometimes in talking with other editors or working with other editors on prose projects, sometimes I, I'm really saddened by like, that kind of unconscious readiness to, to like, do such like, whole-scale violence to people's prose work and to radically refigure it without necessarily being deeply inside the work or trying to understand what it's trying to do, or to be capacious about different rhythms and um, different priorities and different vernaculars of expression. That, that, that kind of old criticism of MFA programs and what happens to, to work in MFA programs, obviously we, we do or don't agree with there is a kind of old running argument, but I feel like that's very true of how prose work gets handled in a lot of spaces and to, you know, to differing degrees along the spectrum. But I wish there was a movement closer to where how we're thinking about poetry, not because of people's delicate sensibilities (laughs) per se, but (laughs) to push editors to have less of certain kinds of unconscious ideals in mind and to be more open to a wider range of possibility and to, to ask, I think to editors, to push themselves to better understand and try and and try and live inside the works that they're reading um, even as they're evaluating them and to to work with them to better move in those directions as opposed to to kind of breaking them off and and charting them in a new course that is kind of by their lights as opposed to the pieces
0: lights lovely i think that's a great kind of manifesto to send out there to prose editors so i want to thank you for spending the time with me today and sharing your lit mag love and i want to ask you about the best way for writers to connect with you and to connect with the asian american literary review
1: check out our issues Um, find us on facebook and twitter we're at awp every year we're out out and about Um, we do our regular issues and we have um, Special issues about every other year. So we put out special calls for those frequently. So um, we'd love to, to read your work and to to talk ideas with you.
2: Yeah. And uh, when you come to, you know, we have a, we pride ourselves on our kind of eclectic and robust programming, especially in its collaborative nature. So, you know, if you come to an event, you know, just introduce yourself, shake our hands, say hi. We're easy to talk with and we enjoy talking to readers. Gerald is anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Well, thank you both.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: So there you have it, my interview with Gerald Ma and Lawrence Minbui Davies of the Asian American Literary Review. The biggest takeaways for me of the interview for writers when I think about writers submitting to the journal were, first of all, they're getting submissions from people who base their submissions on a brutally literal reading of the title, rather than knowing what they publish in the conversations they're incubating. So if you wanna submit to the journal, obviously pick up a copy and understand the conversations that they're incubating. You wanna read their instructions about submissions, they only read in the summer. It doesn't matter how good your piece is, if you submit it outside of the summer, it will not be read. They tend to get odd submissions on white cis male sex tourism in Asia. So definitely avoid sending that work there, avoid writing that work perhaps too. And once one is familiar with the journal, you would know that a submission of one or two poems is inadequate, that they like the model of publishing a number of poems of folio per poet. But on the other hand, for people who are feeling a little rebellious about the rules, you can submit long poems to them. They publish really long poems. They also publish longish prose like entire novellas, and they're suckers for a long interview as well. So this is a great space a rare space to be able to publish longer pieces. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, literature, art and feminism since 1975. And the Lit Mag Love course, an online course to get smart, fearless and published with lots of help from me. Sound editing for the episode is done by Micah Lemiski. And I'm your host, Rachel Thompson. If you want to give us some love in the form of a review wherever you get your podcast, we would love that, and it really helps other writers discover the podcast. You can find us online at litmaglovepodcast.com or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at litmaglove. Thanks for writing and reading literature, and thanks for listening to Litmag Love. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at slash book club.